Greetings from Clayton Studio in St. Louis, Missouri. This is Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Reardon. With me, as always, is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Hey, Brian. It's good to see you through all this plexi. That's right. This is uh, our second episode on COVID-19. We're uh, operating a little bit differently than we typically do when we're doing these podcasts, is that we've got uh, some social distancing in effect, uh, you know, hand sanitizer, wearing masks. It's a different world. And so, uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, for the foreseeable future, we are going to be looking at different aspects of this pandemic. For this episode, we want to talk about the issue of health disparities uh, as we're seeing that. And as Marianne and I were getting ready to, to start the episode here, I pulled up just, uh, again, we're taping this on April 30th, looked at the cdc.gov uh, website, and the effects of COVID-19 on the health of racial and ethnic minority groups is still emerging. However, current data suggest a disproportionate burden of illness and death among racial and ethnic minority groups. This has been reported on, Marianne, quite a bit in the in the media. Yep. With us, our first guest for this episode is Dr. Sam Ross. He is Chief Community Health Officer for Bon Secours Mercy Health. That's a system that serves communities in seven states, including Florida and New York. Uh, Dr. Ross is responsible for leading a large network of community outreach initiatives around housing, education, job skills, and behavioral health, all focused on reducing health disparities and improving access to care. Welcome, Dr. Ross, from Dallas, Texas. Thank you very much. Glad to have you with us. So can you react to that uh, the little uh, part that I quoted from the CDC website on the um, uh, really major impact on racial and ethnic minorities from the, from this uh, virus. Yeah, uh, so, you know, it's getting a lot of uh, attention and uh, a lot of focus on really issues that we already knew existed, that the disparities that they're once again highlighting uh, existed pre-COVID and will exist during COVID and will exist uh, post-COVID. So the real issue now is not that it's occurring and being highlighted, but again, what are we going to do about it as we've been talking about this, these issues of inequities for, for now decades? And what do you see happening, uh, I guess, in this very moment um, as far as improving access to care to those who have had um, disproportionate access, um, have faced, you know, disparities in, in their access to care. So, unfortunately, a lot of the focus now, you know, really on all people who are being impacted is about the uh, sort of the tyranny of the urgent and addressing the immediate needs, in this case, the immediate social needs that are existing. Primarily, you see the food insecurity issues. You see the uh, housing issues arising around whether it's homelessness, or uh, rent uh, subsidies or eviction prevention, and then also, you know, a lot of the issues <clears throat> that are, you know, about advocating for access to care. So people are really focused on those immediate needs, but not at this point focused on moving from the social needs to the social determinants, and now even what people are referring to as the structural determinants which are really at the core of the conditions that you were describing. And I imagine those structural determinants, uh, we're talking decades and decades and decades. And definitely, 
It's about the housing. It's about the job condition. It's about education, all the things that we've uh, identified and, and begin to focus on over the years. I think um, when you talk about the structural determinants of health and, and the long view of that, it's a huge factor. And one of the things I always get worried about is that um, we sometimes blame people for their poor living conditions or their diets or their this or their that. Um, and just from my listening to the afternoon uh, broadcasts about what's going on with COVID, we get story after story of different takes on the data that's coming in. I'm, I know that there have been many studies that people of color have a lower level of trust in health care, in physicians, in big health care systems. How is that playing in as a factor right now? Well, you know, it's a factor in that some of the trust is the desire to no longer be studied again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we come into the communities and we have data that we present and, and we tell them what that data says. But oftentimes that's not their focus as they deal with the activities of daily living. So I think that the trust you know, factor has to be addressed over time. And it starts with the old phrase of meeting people where they are as opposed to where you know, we hope them to be. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the questions I always like to ask is, where do people get their information? And I would uh, say that if you think about the folks in the vulnerable communities and the populations we're talking about, are they going to the cdc.gov uh, website? Are they listening to the traditional news stations that exist in our, in our communities and in our markets? <clears throat> or do they get their information through other processes and through other channels? So I think as we move forward and and really strive to build trust, it's coming to understand uh, those connections. And if they trust family members, if they trust church leaders, uh, other community-based organizations, their local radio station, their local little community newspaper, how do we do a better job of reaching those venues as opposed to the traditional ones that we think about or even billboards. I mean, people think they put up billboards and that people, you know, necessarily do that or on the side of buses. It doesn't always reach the population mm-hmm. that we would like it to do. do you, uh, so it sounds to me like you're saying there needs to be a whole lot more listening to what people in communities consider trustworthy and valuable to them and less outputting of information in not-so-relevant formats. Is that right? Yeah. I would say that because just because we believe it's important that it's presented a certain way doesn't necessarily connect with how they live, how they communicate, and like I said, how they get their information day to day. At Bon Secours, and I know this is true probably for a lot of our our Catholic systems that are members of, of CHA, that collaboration with groups in the community, you mentioned churches, um, Recently, we featured a story about an outreach effort in barbershops in Madison. Um, what, are you, what are some examples of things that you see either at your system or maybe across the ministry that have been particularly effective in building that trust and maintaining strong relationships so there is a back-and-forth dialogue and that it's not just a, a health system official coming in and saying, we think this 
you know, mobile clinic would be good for this neighborhood. Can, can you talk a little bit about what works particularly well? Yeah, so, you know, all of us are required <clears throat> to do uh, community health needs assessments as part of the Affordable Care Act and IRS guidelines for nonprofit status. What we found over time in doing that process is that it really is about community engagement. And community engagement is not just a phrase or a term, but it really is back to what I said earlier about meeting people where they are. So don't just do the survey. You know, don't just have a community forum and take notes. And then come back three years later, right? Yeah, you're building relationships that continue, you know, to inform you as to whether or not the programs and services or ideas that you have even make sense. We, we talk a lot about community engagement, but when we look at our organizations, do we really have community members involved, included in our processes? Are they at the table? And the old saying is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Are they at the table providing insights, input into decisions that are being made? So I think if we continue to do more of that and that there's not just a name of an institution, but there's actually faces that community members can relate to, that they're on our advisory boards, they're on our quality committees, and whatever else, you know, that we're, we're allowing to happen through our bylaws and rules and regulations, then they will really start to believe, because it is the other phrase is behavior equals belief. So if we start to behave in a way that is really about engaging and including, then I think that will go toward building trust and us understanding whether or not what we're doing is really the right intervention. Dr. Russ, you're the person who introduced me to the Healthcare Anchor Network, and I've done a fair amount of research since then. Would you talk about how, how that is important in building stronger and diverse communities and why it might be especially important right now? Yeah, you know, so... Part of this is embracing, you know, our Catholic social teaching and those principles, but it's also, again, tied to community engagement and our commitment. Uh, I think the other thing we often forget is that we talk about our communities being at risk a lot, but some, the other phrase that people now talk about is that they're also at, at, at opportunity. Mm-hmm. That opportunity is tied to the fact that there are assets in our community. And when we engage them, we should be thinking more in terms of of an asset-based framework as opposed to a deficit uh, framework that we often find ourselves uh, uh, thinking or or being involved in. So the Healthcare Anchor Network is about how are we looking at local hiring? Because as health systems, we all have an opportunity, but we don't always look at who's right in front of us that we could be helping to improve their economic status and the overall economic status of the community. And they're great workers on top of that. And then we start to look at our supply chain opportunities. <clears throat> a lot of us have these large group purchasing uh, uh, organizations that we are part of, but we all have discretionary spend. So how do we look at our women minority business enterprises in our markets and what do we have discretion to purchase so that they can grow, so that they can hire other people in the communities? And then, again, the economic status of all improves, and they provide a great service. 
uh, to our systems. And then the last component is community-based investments. <clears throat> we all have uh, uh, community-directed investments through our investment uh, portfolios and our organizations. How do we look at other similar organizations, community-based uh, programs, uh, or other other um, uh, organizations, even larger organizations, if they are aligned with our mission, our vision, our values, how do we invest in them directly in such a way that they can grow and, again, improve the health and economic status of those in our community? So that framework is really there to address the structural determinants over time mm -hmm. and really, like I said, move the community from this at-risk thinking to really the at-opportunity approach. And what struck me about the healthcare anchor network is the amazing impact it could have. And, and as I understand it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Ross, on this, but you've got, what, 15 health systems they've committed to targeting 1% of their investment income towards the investments you just talked about in the communities. And you take that in aggregate and it's something like $700 million nationwide. I mean, that's, that could make a big impact. It is, but we have to do it. Again, this is where the partnerships and the synergies come into play. And so, you know, when we're in our markets, we have to quit thinking about what do we do alone. Right. And even though there may be other health systems that aren't Catholic, but they all have missions that align with uh, community development and community engagement, we should be looking for those opportunities to build that ecosystem for sustainability. So that sounds very hopeful to me. And, you know, I love the way you ent uh, ended our interview a couple months ago when you quoted St. Augustine by saying, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are Anger and Courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they don't remain that way. So given what you just said about the Healthcare Anchor Network, can you talk a little bit about how, how hopeful you feel about that and, and what progress you think we can expect? Sure. So um, in my Baptist background, you know, I'm Baptist in the Catholic health system, so I say I'm Baptolic. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but we, we have a, a, a hymn, uh, the title of the hymn is The Solid Rock, but the first line in there is our hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it goes on to say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. So Catholic social teaching, you know, is really about, you know, the healing ministry of Jesus Christ and the things that we do. So my hope is that not just COVID, you know, but post-COVID, that we continue to stand on our firm beliefs and our guiding principles for Catholic health care and Catholic social teaching uh, my hope is that, you know, we, we can acknowledge that none of us can do this alone, that is going to require us doing this together with our community members to get to solutions that are sustainable and scalable. And then my, my hope is that, you know, our ministry uh, continues to thrive because we were built, you know, I've told our team members this in community health, we were built we were designed, we were created, we were established for a time such as this. And so the foundation is there, and we just have to go out and build on it. <clears throat> and, again, just recognize that we all have strengths, we all have values, and we need to put those things together collectively 
and keep the people at the forefront of all that we do because this is about person-centered care. And the, the more we do that, you know, the better the outcomes are going to be, not just short-term, but really uh, sustainable over time. Yeah, and to that I would say a big amen. Thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule and talking to Marianne and I uh, about this issue. Uh, any final words before we let you get on with your day? Uh, no, again, I would just say we need to be ever vigilant and ever aware. And just because we believe we're providing access, if the community doesn't believe it, then we're missing the boat. Dr. Sam Ross, he is Chief Community Health Officer for Bon Secours Mercy Health. Thank you, Dr. Ross. Stay safe. Stay well. Thank you. Same to you. We have on the phone now for our second part of this conversation from Chesterfield, Missouri, just outside St. Louis, our colleague and friend, Dennis Gonzalez. Dennis is the Senior Director of Mission Innovation and Integration at CHA. He actually joined CHA recently after serving as Regional Vice President for Mission Integration at Christus Santa Rosa Health System and the Children's Hospital of San Antonio. Dennis, great to hear your voice. Hey, thanks, Brian. How you holding inviting up? me. How are you holding up? Doing all right. Keeping very busy, uh, learning to work from home and maintain contact with colleagues and friends and loved ones just in a different, different way. Yeah, you look a lot better on Zoom than you do in person, just saying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I, I, we cut my own hair. Uh, we He's cut never our own said that to week, me, Dennis. So I'm glad you can't see it too clearly on the screen. We can't see you at all, so it's okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to start, Dennis, because I remember our very first conversation when you came to CHA. And, uh, you know, you just made me smile when you talked about your background growing up in a Hispanic community. And then, and then we know you worked for many years with Christus which serves many Hispanic and other minorities community in the stretch of its ministry. So I know you're really proud of your heritage and also of the work you've been involved with that's trying to reduce disparities among minorities. How does that feel right now in the midst of a pandemic, a crisis that the likes of us haven't seen before? Right. Well, uh, thank you, Marianne. And uh, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is Lovely city, very old city, um, uh, founded uh, in the 1600s. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a in a predominantly uh, Hispanic community, the, the probably 65 percent or more. Um, so, in terms of the differences among minorities, in this case, it would be basically three cultures, the Anglo culture, the Hispanic, uh, which is really the old Spanish culture in that part of the country, and Native American. Uh, those were the three main cultures. And early on, uh, growing up in that, in Santa Fe, the disparities fell not so much along racial lines, but along uh, socioeconomic lines. And so over the years, as I've lived across the country and in uh, different states, uh, Missouri is my sixth driver's license uh, that I've had. So as I've moved around, I've, it's been, uh, I guess, underlined and, uh, and proven to me personally that a lot of times these disparities may not necessarily always follow racial lines. They tend to, but it's really the root cause is more along socioeconomic lines. And uh, we're seeing that now uh, more than ever in the in in the course of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I think it's way too early for hindsight, but can you tell us what you're watching that can help us figure out whether things are going to get better along those socioeconomic lines or whether they're not heading in such a good direction? Yeah, I wish I could say that I'm optimistic. Um, I, I can't. I'm, you know, what we're, there's, a, there's a report that was released recently by the Root Cause Coalition, um, and it's the 2020 Status of Health Equity Report. And uh, this group, by the way, studies uh, mainly what I was referring to earlier, the underlying socioeconomic factors um, that we see in our country that tend to fall along racial lines, but not exclusively. Um, and, and, you know, those factors are, are things that, that, that everybody is really focused on right now, which is, you know, safe and affordable housing. Um, you know, uh, certainly access to affordable food and nutritious food. Uh, just last night there was three or four stories on food uh, issues in the country. Uh, transportation, you know, uh, public transportation. If you're taking a subway, uh, if you've ever been on a New York subway, and most of us have, many of us have, uh, you're not only less than six feet apart, but you're touching each other whether you want to or not. Right. Um, you know, and all of these things, all of these uh, what we would call uh, social determinants of health, uh, and when you add to that uh, access to health care um, being, uh, you know, not, not there for millions of Americans, probably 30-some million Americans, uh, and then with people being out of work as a result of the crisis, you know, when you lose your job, you're very likely going to lose your access to health care as well. So, sadly, it's it's a snowballing effect that we're seeing that's hitting the less affluent, uh, which tend to be uh, racial minorities, but not exclusively. But it's, we're seeing it hit that group in our society much harder than those of us who are fortunate and, and, and able to uh, work from home and continue to receive our paycheck and our benefits. So, I wish I could be optimistic. I will say from, from one point, my hope is that, that as a country collectively, we will all step back and just look at the data and say, wow, through this crisis, the disparities have been magnified. They're there for all of us to see. And maybe, just maybe, there may be more of a desire to thoughtfully and not politically uh, address the needs of Americans, especially those who are less fortunate. I just, I so appreciated the way you said that, because I think given what's happened in our news cycles, uh, it is so much more important to be realistic than optimistic. So, um, you know, some false optimism is, is not what we want. What we want is realism, and I'm really glad you addressed it that way. Yeah, I think that uh, that's what we need more than ever. And I, I do see glimmers of hope. I see governors working together who maybe would not have six months ago, um, governors working with the administration who maybe might not have six months ago. So there are glimmers of hope. And so um, I, I would like to be somewhat optimistic, but also, as you said, Marianne, realistic at the same time as to what, what, the, what the present reality is. Mm -hmm. and, and Dennis, I, I want to take a little bit of a different tact on this topic and talk about children. Um, I know you had worked uh, with the San Antonio community with the uh, Christus Children's Hospital there, um, so you probably have a, a good feel for some of the challenges, particularly for uh, the youngest members of our society. What do you see as some of the, the 
potential dangers to kids? Again, they're not in the in the at-risk group per se for the actual virus itself, but as people are sheltering in place, you mentioned um, unemployment, a lot of the socioeconomic pressures. Um, how concerned should we be about the, the health of our, our kids coming out of this crisis? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Brian. I'm glad you I'm glad you raised it. Um, that was one of my favorite uh, in my I've had a I've had a wonderful career and had lots of great opportunities. And one that I'll always carry with me was my uh, role at the Children's Hospital of San Antonio. Um, and you know, my my answer is 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 really not unlike the previous, but it's, it has a little bit of a nuance, and that is. When we talk about helping children, if we're going to help children, and, and we would hope everyone would agree that is something we should do, if we're going to help children, then that means we have to support their parents and their guardians. Um, and what does that mean? That means, you know, meaningful actions uh, that support and protect public health, um, you know, things that include policies that protect workers. Uh, you know, when I was in San Antonio, a lot of the – by the way, that hospital is one of the highest Medicaid children's hospitals in the United States. And so the vast majority of those parents and guardians of those kids were low-wage earners. Um, and so when, when crises like, the, like this that we're in right now happen, is there anything in place to protect those workers? Um, you know, things like paid sick leave. How many people have paid sick leave? Um, how many people have, you know, health insurance? And even if they do, is the uh, deductible so high that they might, that it's like they don't have it at all? Yeah. States that haven't expanded Medicaid, you know, a lot of times when we talk about Medicaid, we tend to forget that that children are the high, some of the highest users and benefactors of Medicaid. Um, and so states that didn't expand Medicaid, that is a definitely to the detriment of some of the most vulnerable, which are children. And, of course, they're going to also tend to be children of color. Um, so there's, there's uh, possibilities. Like right now I would advocate extending enrollment periods for health insurance, opening the exchanges um, so that uh, people who have lost their health insurance, their health coverage, can, can get on the exchange and get some. Um, so those kinds of, of, of uh, useful and meaningful actions, Brian, I think are what we should be looking at um, that help adults, you know, parents and guardians, but in so doing, we are, we are helping the children as well, of course. And I'm going to switch gears again on you, uh, Dennis. Um, so now in your role at CHA, you work with a lot of mission leaders across the ministry. Um, they get involved uh, when we talk about these, these issues of disparities and health access. What what are some of the skill sets as you talk to your colleagues um, across the CHA membership? Um, what are the skills they should be having, the sensitivities um, that they can do to really help those who are hardest hit, uh, who are most vulnerable from this pandemic? Yeah, you know, uh, the role of the mission leader has changed so much uh, in the last 20, 30 years, and it continues to evolve. Um, you know, back in the day, mission leaders were generally sisters uh, that were sponsors of the of the organizations of the ministries. Um, they were oftentimes seen more as a chaplain or a cheerleader, or you know, sometimes a mascot, someone who did the prayer. Um, today, uh, mission leaders are truly uh, senior leaders, executive leaders that sit at the at the senior table. 
um, that generally report to the CEO um, and therefore are involved in the decisions that are being made, the, the impactful decisions that are being made. I'm talking about budgetary decisions, and those include uh, programs and, and uh, opportunities that help address the needs of children, of minorities, of the vulnerable, of the, of, uh, the uninsured. Um, so mission leaders are really called upon to, to step up and uh, first and foremost to be a strong voice, to be, uh, to be a strong voice at that table, make sure that they are informed and that, you know, that sounds easy, but to make sure that you are adequately and properly informed because there's so much incorrect information out there. And I would say one of the things a mission leader can do most is if you have that seat at the senior executive table, that you exercise managerial courage, that you speak up because those who are most vulnerable don't have a voice and they're not sitting at that table. And so mission leaders are, if anyone should, it should be the mission leader that speaks up and advocates, advocates, advocates for uh, the, more, the more vulnerable in our society. In terms of that kind of leadership, Dennis, I want to ask two questions. So one is how can mission leaders themselves lead in terms of cultural competence? Um, you know, how, how can they do that in terms of staff? How can they do that in terms of the communities that they serve? And I guess the other question is, is very specific to this moment. So many people are being furloughed or laid off or, um, and, what can the mission leader do not only to help inform the decisions that are being made and and taking courageous stands, as, as you referred to that, um, and what can they do to the people who get to stay, who feel survivor guilt sometimes, or the people who have to leave and don't know what they're going to do next? Um, so, so would you talk about that? Sure. Um, both, uh, both tough questions. Um, on the first, I think... <clears throat> You know, one way that a, that a mission leader can develop their own cultural competence, because uh, all of us all of us need to. I just moved to St. Louis, and I've never lived in the Midwest before, so I find myself uh, having been more of a of a of a Southwest person, uh, adapting myself and learning about the culture of the Midwest. Um, so. It was easy for me early on because I grew up in, in predominantly uh, minority, uh, you know, Hispanic or African-American, uh, Native American communities. Um, for others that haven't had that opportunity, there, you know, if you want to call it a lack of cultural competence, it's, it's really because they haven't had the opportunity uh, or they have to, to have an ex the experience. Mm -hmm. you, know, they, you know, the old saying, you fear what you don't know. Um, and so probably the best thing a mission leader can do to develop their cultural competence is to get to know people uh, from different cultures and backgrounds. And that means you have to intentionally, uh, you know, you have to make an effort to intentionally not just study, although that's a good idea, but more importantly to experience other cultures. Um, and in the United States it isn't too hard to do that because we are uh, such a diverse country. Your, your second question is, uh, is something that's uh, happening right now, as you alluded to, Marianne, in terms of uh, furloughs and layoffs across the country and in our ministries. Uh, unfortunately, I served uh, twice as a mission executive um, in, in situations where we were uh, faced with layoffs. Uh, it happened twice in my career at two different uh, facilities or regions, actually. 
And the first thing I would say that a mission leader can do in that regard is to be in the conversation. And that may sound obvious, but it isn't. Um, sometimes those conversations tend towards tend to happen with the CEO and operations and finance, and the mission leader has to, if not invited, uh, insert themselves uh, into the conversation. Um, and the most obvious question that sometimes isn't asked is, do is a layoff really necessary, um, or is it the easier thing to do? Um, I have found sometimes it's the easier thing to do, and because because other ways of saving dollars or cutting expenses is just too complicated or just too hard. And a mission leader who exercises uh, managerial courage can push that. Um, they can also explore other options. You know, what other options are there? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of other options. There's, uh, you know, uh, allowing people to voluntarily uh, retire. You know, we have, a, we have an aging workforce. A lot of people are wanting to retire. You can you can uh, have voluntary pay cuts for the highest wage earners. Um, you know they can be temporary layoffs. You can uh, you can have voluntary separations. You can look at performance reviews. Um, there's lots of opportunities, including uh, moving people from you know a position that is no longer necessary to other areas where there is a need. Um, and a mission leader is in a position to raise those questions and push it, push it a little bit, push the envelope and say, you know, sometimes we have to choose between what is easy and what is right. And the mission leader can hopefully be in a position to encourage the senior team, the decision makers, to be willing to work a little harder and do a little more groundwork uh, for what's best for the employees and for the associates. Well, Dennis, that's uh, really appreciate you taking the time out, um, providing your perspective, both as a, a former Christus colleague and now a colleague of ours at CHA. Uh, hope you're staying safe and well, and thanks again for calling in. You too. Thank you for the invitation. Good speaking with you, Brian and Marianne. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dennis. And this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Brian Reardon, and by my side, actually this time through a window is Marianne Steiner, our co-host and also the editor of Health Progress. And I should make a plug that uh, Health Progress has gone online during this pandemic. Uh, you can read all of the latest coverage uh, that Marianne and her team are doing around COVID-19 at chausa.org. Uh, we're featuring those articles as well as articles from Catholic Health World at the top of our homepage and on our dedicated COVID-19 page. So check that out. And we'll be back again with another episode in the near future uh, on this crisis that's before us. And until then, we'll talk to you.